first century ecclesia, and in particular tonight we're going to look at leadership. Now, some of you might be a bit disappointed that um, Glenn's not doing this particular presentation as he, as he was down in the program, so sorry to disappoint you. But um, I think Glenn's at uh, Lismore this weekend speaking to the young people there. So we've done a little bit of a switcheroo and I'm going to do leadership and he's going to do the next one, which will be on, I think it's conversion, which I don't think will be next week. I think it'll be in a couple of weeks' time. So essentially what we want to do tonight is, I guess the purpose of this study on the Book of Acts is to try and look at the first century ecclesia as a, um, a model of, how we would like to be, and, and obviously people have tried to do that in the past, but we, we want to look to how the first century went about um, establishing the ecclesia and then making sure that we're as closely as possible following um, our first century brothers and sisters. And, and the Book of Acts is an awesome guidebook for that because I suppose it's the setting up of the ecclesias. And therefore, we're able to see every step of the way how the apostles and the Apostle Paul go about establishing the ecclesia. And we can take from that uh, things that we, that, we can, that we do in our own meetings, in our own ecclesia. And tonight, hopefully, we'll look at the subject of leadership, uh, see how the first century did it, and then compare it a little bit to the way we do things in our ecclesia um, and how we're sort of established as Christadelphians as well. Um, and we're going to take tonight from Acts chapter 6. I think it says in the, um, in the program that the reading was Acts 7. So if you were hoping for a dissertation on uh, Stephen's speech on Acts 7, I'm going to unfortunately have to disappoint you again. We're just going to take this small section of seven verses from the start of Acts chapter 6 as a little bit of an insight into some of the, le- the way that the leaders operated in the first century ecclesia. Now, Leadership is an important subject, isn't it? Um, it's everywhere in sort of every part of life, I think, and it's an important part. And obviously God's designed leadership and leadership structure into sort of the way that we live and the way that we operate. It's, essential, it's an essential part of every successful pursuit in life, whether that's um, you know, the high end of military leadership or, or in the army, whether, there's, whether you're in business, uh, there's you know, millions of books on business leadership. Uh, there's leadership in sport. And there's also leadership as the cornerstone to God's ecclesia. And if you look throughout the history of the Old Testament, leadership is a really important part about what God does uh, with his people. And it's an important touchstone into the success of God's people and his ecclesia throughout history as well. Like a perfect example of that is the, is the kings. Um, the kings, that Israel sort of rises and falls spiritually based on the leadership at the time. If there's a good leader and there's good leadership and he institutes good principles by which the nation's going to lead, then, then the, the nation prospers and the spiritual, uh, spiritual um, growth of the nation prospers. But then subsequently, when there's a bad leader, um, he, he can cause enormous damage for years to come. And so leadership is just such an important part of what uh, God does and, ha- and has instituted for um, all of his disciples. Now, I really like this um, proverb here on leadership as a bit of an introduction to what we're um, going to look at. 
in the Proverbs in chapter 11 and verse 14, so, um, Solomon says, when there is no guidance, a nation falls, but there is success in the abundance of counsellors. And we're going to see that in tonight's little section in Acts that, that that proverb is very much true, and I think it's something that we can really use as an antidote for our own meetings and our own families um, as something that God wants us to, to follow as part of leadership. So let's get into this little section in, in Acts chapter 6, first of all. Now, obviously, it says there in verse 1, in those days. Now, we're obviously in the very early stages of the development of the ecclesia. Glenn brought us uh, last in our last class, he, he introduced us to the foundation of the ecclesia, which was Peter establishing the meeting in Acts chapter 2 and establishing all the principles by which the, the, the meeting would operate. And the core of the ecclesia developed out of that speech or the doctrines in that speech, and then the formation of the ecclesia developed from there. And between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6, it says in verse 1 of, six, of, of chapter 6, and when the number of the disciples was multiplied. So from the point of Acts chapter 2 to here, there has been an enormous amount of growth in the ecclesia. And as many of you would know who have looked at the book of Acts, uh, Luke, who's the author of Acts, gives us these reports about the, the growth of the ecclesia, these little updates as he goes. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, um, and look at um, verse 15, you'll see that after Jesus had ascended into heaven, that there was a relatively small little group of believers who assembled in that upper room as the core of the meeting at that time. Verse 15 says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of his disciples and said, the number together were about 120. So there's a relatively small group of 120, a little intimate group that formed the ecclesia in that upper room in Acts chapter 2. But we know that, that ecclesia expanded very, very quickly in Jerusalem. Um, you look over at Acts chapter 2, as we looked at in our last class in verse 41, it says, and when they gladly received the word, sorry, verse 41, when they that gladly received the word were baptised, that same day there were added them about 3,000 souls. So amazingly, 3,000 people are added to the ecclesia uh, in that one, after that one speech. And obviously there was many people that were right for, for repentance after Peter gave that speech. If you flick over to, well, the last verse of Acts chapter 2 says, they praised God. This is the, the meeting that the, the meeting that had formed, having favour with all the people, and the Lord added to the ecclesia daily as should be saved. So they then developed from there this continual growth on top of that three thousand people after that particular moment. If you flick over to Acts chapter four and verse four, it's awesome to colour these in if you haven't covered colour them in your Bible. It just gives you the perspective as to how the ecclesia is growing. Acts four verse four says. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of, their, the, number of the men was about 5,000. So 
After Peter's speech again in Acts chapter 3, another 5,000 people are added to the ecclesia. So the ecclesia has, has, and and it says there, a number of men. So it could have included women on top of that. So the ecclesia is growing at, at at a rapid rate in this first century. Just click over one more to Acts 5 and verse 14. It says there, and the believers more added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. That word multitude is often used for for people in their thousands. So, again, hundreds if not thousands of people are added to the ecclesia again in Acts chapter 5. So by the time we get to to Acts chapter 6 and we're introduced to the multiplied ecclesia, we're probably looking in the vicinity of between sort of at least 10 to 20,000 people that have formed in that ecclesia. It's gone from in a very quick amount of time, it's gone from an intimate little group of 120 people, which was essentially the disciples and their extended family, so they all knew and they'd all gone through this experience of knowing Jesus over those three years of ministry with him, and it suddenly expanded in such such a quick period of time to this enormous multitude of people. And as far as what we can see, they're all part of the same meeting, this huge meeting in Jerusalem. Between ten and 20,000 perhaps people who are part of this meeting. Now, with that growth and that rapid change that happens in this meeting, there's obviously going to present problems and challenges that the disciples are going to have to deal with. And that's the case in any sort of changing sort of environment, isn't it? And particularly one that changes as rapidly as this. And that's what happens. They they develops in this verse a problem in the ecclesia. And it's often when there's there's growth or changing circumstances where there there can be problems or differences arise rise in meetings. I just and I'm not saying that there's a, there's a problem, there's problems, but I'm just saying I, I can think over the last 10 years of our ecclesia, I can think 10 years ago, we probably got down to maybe an ecclesia in our 40s. And we've, we haven't increased to 20,000, but we've increased to an ecclesia in, in our 90s and things change over just that small amount of people, it, doesn't it? Like you can't sort of with 90 people and then all these kids, you can't, you can't have an conne- intimate connection with every single brother and sister in the ecclesia. It's just, it's just not possible. And as the ecclesia grows and there's change, there's always going to be adaptions that happen. And that's not a problem. Um, That's just part of the growth of the ecclesia. But recognising that and and showing leadership in those particular um, times is really important. Now, as I said, they developed a problem this particular meeting as a result of this growth. And this is the problem, verse 1. There arose a murmuring, so there was a grumbling uh, the word means like um, some underlying divisions started to develop in the meeting. And it says there the reason why was because the Grecians, the murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews 
because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So it develops a problem between these two different cultural groups within the ecclesia. Now, it says there the Grecians. What that word actually is, is in the Greek, it's the word Hellenist. And it simply means Greek-speaking Jews. So these people were still Jews, but they were in the time of the first century, particularly in Jerusalem, there was sort of a split between those who were perhaps more modern Jews who were Greek-speaking Jews, which was the tongue of the day, and then there was the more traditional Hebrew-speaking Jews. And there is a problem between these two cultural groups that develops. And the problem is, and, and just on that, that, that previous to this, that these two groups would probably have met in different synagogues in Jerusalem. So they probably normally didn't have anything to do with each other. There would have been the Hellenist synagogues and there would have been the Hebrew synagogues. And they, they, they would culturally go to these different places. But, of course, the truth had brought these people out of the synagogues and part of this new formed ecclesia, and they'd all been brought in together. And there's a problem that develops, and it's a, it's a problem around the widows. The widows of the Grecians, the Greek-speaking Jews, were being neglected in the daily ministration. Now, we know that in those times, the widows were always the most vulnerable, weren't they, because they were obviously without husband, and if they didn't have children particularly to support them, they were left pretty much alone to fend for themselves. There was no state sort of welfare system that in those times that provided for these people, and it was usually the role of the synagogue that had at least provided something for these people. But, of course, these people had been removed from the synagogue because they're now Christian. So it relied upon the ecclesia to supply the needs for particularly these people. Now, it seems to be what had happened is that, that the ecclesia was providing ministration for these widows in the meeting, but there was neglect or mismanagement, particularly on the part of these widows that were from the Greek-speaking background. And this was causing problem in the meeting. It was causing angst and grumbling between these two groups, and ultimately it was creating division within the meeting. Now, although it's not a positive that we take, um, it is the reality that here we are in the first century, the, the ecclesia, it's absolute prime. You've got the, the leaders that are in charge of it are spirit-filled leaders, and many in the ecclesia had the Holy Spirit gifts. They could do amazing miracles. But that, of course, did not stop human nature and it did not stop problems occurring in the meeting, as this one did. It's just that it's a part of human life. And the most important part of this is that it's recognised and that the leadership of the time are able to do something about it. And that's exactly what happened. In verse 2, we see that the 12... They're described as in verse 2. Then the 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them. So the 12 are, of course, the 12 apostles who were the leadership of the ecclesia at that particular time, headed by um, people like Peter and John. They provided leadership. And they recognised this problem in the meeting. They immediately recognised the division. 
And, and what they do, and this is a you know one of the first steps to um, leadership that we can learn from from these men, is they are very proactive. They recognised it very quickly, and they move very quickly to do something about it. And I think that's a real example of of leadership. Now. It's interesting to see what they do and the way they go about it. Sometimes we think, again, because they had the Holy Spirit, maybe they could have just clicked their fingers or done some miracle or some kind of magic trick which you know, deterred everyone's attention and everything would go away. But they don't do that. They, in fact, act in a very similar way, the same way, in the ways that we act in our meetings. And it's here for our instruction in those, for that reason. So first thing that says that they do is... The 12 obviously recognise that there's a problem and they then call the multitude of the disciples unto them. So they call, they don't just sit amongst themselves to try and to solve this problem. They just decide to call an assembly of all of the ecclesia in. Now, I don't know how they did that or whether they had a room big enough to fit the old ecclesia where the representatives of each family went to that meeting. It would be very much like a business meeting that we might have at our ecclesia. And they call this Big business meeting straight away to try and look into and solve this problem. Now, that was very wise, wasn't it, of these leaders? Because what they were doing was they were ensuring right from the start that this problem which had, had developed in the meeting, it, it wasn't a problem just for the leaders to deal with. It was a problem that all of the ecclesia needed to be a part of being aware of the problem and then also taking responsibility to actually coming up with a solution for the problem. So that's the process which they go about to solve this problem. Now, what do they say? Well, they stand up in front of the ecclesia at the business meeting. Um, you know, probably maybe John's chairman and um, sitting at that little green table up the front, John's chairman and Peter, um, is, is doing the main sort of talking. Perhaps he's like the recorder of the Ecclesia. And they say to the Ecclesia, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So they would have outlined to the Ecclesia the particular problem, and the problem was that there was the neglect of these widows and there needed to be something done about it. And their statement to the meeting is, we, we're not in a situation where we can leave what we're doing to go and serve tables. Now, I always find that that statement sounds a little bit arrogant from the disciples, as if they're saying, look, the work that we're doing is so important, we don't have time to go and deal with these petty little issues in the ecclesia that have really got nothing to do with us and are quite frankly below us, right? So you guys go and sort it out. Well, that, that, even though it sounds a little bit like that, it actually wasn't the case at all. That's not what they were saying. In fact, we know to this point that this part of the ecclesial administration was being done by the 12 disciples. If you just look back in Acts chapter 4, you'll see there that remember that at this point there was People were bringing all of their goods, all their possessions, and they were all basically living as one so that those who were poor could be looked after. And you can see what was happening in verse 35 of chapter 4. It says, and they laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as his need. So 
up until this point, all the provision was being brought to the apostles and the apostles were providing and, and, and moving that provision to where it needed to be provided. So this is not something that was below the apostles, but rather what actually was happening was they were coming to the ecclesia and saying, look, this, this task is getting too big. We've got too many people here. There's no way that we can do what we need to do and do properly this administration of these practical needs of the ecclesia. We, we, we can't do it alone. We need to, have to bring in more leadership within the meeting. Now, I reckon that's a really important part and, and a, an excellent part of the leadership of these apostles. See, ecclesial leadership and good leadership, just good leadership generally, is very rarely about one or two key people doing everything because usually that breaks down at some point. The best leadership is about delegating enough people with the right skills to manage different tasks. And there's many great examples in the Bible of great leaders doing that. I always think of the one that I think is a great leader in the Bible is, is Nehemiah when he built the walls. And, and that was one of the key strengths that that man had. He wasn't a man that went in and said, I'm going to do everything myself. He went in and he recognised the skills of all these different people and where they could work best in the ecclesia and then they were delegated to those roles according to their skills so that work could be done as well as possible and as quickly as possible. And that's what the disciples are doing here. They need to ensure that a good job is done. And they then say, look, the reason why we can't do that, do um, go and serve at these tables, is we can't leave the word of God. And see, the word of God was particularly given to the apostles as their task to take on. The apostle means one set apart. And what they were set apart to do, particularly those 12, was to take the word of God. You remember the, the, the angel said it to them when Jesus ascended up into heaven. You need to take this word of God and you need to go and preach it into all of Judea and Samaria and then take it to the uttermost parts of the world. That's your particular part and important role that you needed to play in this. And they had been doing that. If you just flip back again to um, Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, How be it, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So to this point, the apostles had managed to do that role. And they had been taking this precious word, this message of hope, and they'd been delivering it through these speeches and through their preaching, and that was growing the meeting. But now that's been compromised, and they need to do something about it. So they say there, we need someone to do this work of serving tables. Now, that word um, serve, where it says serving tables, is the Greek word um, Dekoneo, which simply means an attendant or someone who waits upon. And, of course, a table is like a, a, something for a physical provision, isn't it? So the work that needed to be done was this office of a deacon, it would be later called a deacon, which was focused on the practical needs of the ecclesia. 
And the apostles identify that that's a need which the ecclesia needs to fill. Now, if you uh, come to verse 3, the the apostles then are going to recommend to the ecclesia how they should go about selecting these people for this particular role. Verse 3 says, Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who you may appoint over this business. So they recommend that they go and choose. They, they recommend, well, they, they say there, you go and choose. So we're going to make a recommendation to you, but then you, as the ecclesial body, need to go and select the people that are going to be involved in this particular work. And they suggest that you should choose seven men to be appointed for this particular role. Now, why did they choose that it be seven? Well, a a couple of suggestions could be. One is that um, seven is usually a, um, a number, like a representative number that represents like a whole group of people. A good example of that is uh, the seven ecclesias in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Those seven ecclesias and the traits of those seven ecclesias go to represent all of the Gentile ecclesias that would exist from that point on right up until our day, and they're all represented by seven ecclesias. So seven was a good number as a representative number of people in the ecclesia, and that's what they were recommending they do. We want you to select these seven men to basically represent the opinions of everyone in the ecclesia because it's going to be impossible for these men to get this whole a business meeting together every single time to make these decisions. So it's going to be more practical to, to get seven men that represent the opinions of the ecclesia that you select and those people will be selected and be chosen for this, this role, uh, this practical role in the ecclesia. Now, I also think just by way of interest that there's a bit of an allusion to or, or Jesus had alluded to this previously when he had um, been in his ministry. See, Jesus wasn't the, the, the greatest leader, wasn't he? And one of the, the best things about lead, uh, Jesus' leadership is, like the apostles here, he was most concerned about, in his ministry, of course, teaching the, the message of the gospel and, and outworking what he needed to do. But he was also very concerned with passing on his leadership, particularly to those 12 disciples, because he knew that he was not going to be in the world forever, but he was going to die soon. And the work of looking after the ecclesia was going to be handed over to the 12 apostles. Now, Jesus does two miracles. We haven't got time to go back to them, so but they're fairly well-known miracles, so you should be able to stay with me here. But he does two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And in those two miracles that Jesus did, the purpose behind those two miracles, there's often a purpose and a reason behind why Jesus did miracles, The purpose behind those two miracles in particular was Jesus was trying to teach his disciples about how to take on this leadership of looking after the ecclesia once he had gone. And so he demonstrated very, very beautifully, I think, particularly in the 
the feeding of the 5,000, how to be a great leader. What he did, if you go back to it yourself in your own time, you'll see that he demonstrates in that miracle a real, genuine compassion for that huge multitude of people. You might remember the disciples saying, get rid of them, send, send them away. And Jesus shows compassion and care for those people. He then moves to look after the practical needs of the people by feeding them food. He looked after the physical needs of those people by healing some of the people that needed heal, healing. And then he looked after the spiritual needs of those people by teaching them the word of God. And he demonstrated in that beautiful miracle what leadership and true leadership was all about. And then he tried to push his disciples to be part of that, okay? So when he went to feed the 5,000 with, with, with the baskets, he gave the baskets to the disciples and he said, I want you to give these baskets to the people. And he divided the people up, it says, into 50s and 10s, groups of people, almost like little ecclesias. And he said, I want you to take these baskets out and I want you to give those baskets to the people. And that's what the disciples did. And you might remember that at the end of that particular parable, sorry, at that particular miracle, that there were baskets left over. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus mainly was feeding a Jewish multitude and at the end there were 12 baskets of fragments left over. And Jesus was symbolising in those 12 remaining baskets that they were the baskets which needed to be picked up by the disciples once he had gone and used to administer and lead the ecclesia once he's gone. And that would be particularly the Jewish ecclesia would be the responsibility of those 12 apostles. Now, then Jesus fed the 4,000. And the difference with the feeding of the 4,000 was that the feeding of the 4,000 was the Gentile multitude that Jesus went and preached to. And he went and showed the same leadership and care for those Gentiles who he fed. And then at the end of that particular miracle, there was seven baskets left over. And I believe that that's a, 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 almost a prophecy or a type of the way the leadership would be structured. It was pointing forward to the Gentile ecclesias and how leadership would be then needed to be taken to those ecclesians and be set up. And here's the first step of that with this, um, this giving of, of more leadership responsibilities in Acts chapter 6 to these other brethren, which would then be, as we will see, replicated to the other ecclesias. Other interesting thing about that is you, you might remember the next time, the last time, in fact, they, they ate bread and fish together was the last chapter of John, John chapter 21. And you remember the disciples had sort of given up and led by Peter, they said, oh, let's go back fishing, you know, and they went back to their fishing boats and they were fishing. And they met Jesus or they saw Jesus on the beach, and Jesus was on the beach and he was cooking breakfast for them. And what was he cooking? He was cooking bread and he was cooking fish. And those disciples all came to him and gathered around and Jesus said to them, what have you gone back fishing for? I've got a very important role for you to play and that is to be the leaders of this new ecclesia. And he said that to Peter, didn't he? He said, what you need to go and do now, Peter, is go and feed my sheep. 
look at it the way that I led the people and cared for the people for their practical and spiritual needs. I want you to take that on for yourself now and I want you to lead the people in the same way. So perhaps the 12 and the 7, it's interesting in, in, in Acts chapter 6 that the, the apostles are called the 12 in, that, in those verses. That's the only time in Acts they're called the 12. And the 12 and the 7 is the two leadership models in which Jesus had designed that would be for the Jewish ecclesia and then the way that the Gentile ecclesia would also take up that leadership. So let's look into Acts chapter 6 and you'll see there that the apostles outlined three credentials needed by these leaders who would take on this role of looking after the practical needs of the ecclesia. He said there's three things that are needed. He says the first thing is they need to be of honest report. Now, what does honest report mean? Well, they need to be good men that people generally recognised as good men. Timothy, when he talks about these leaders in the meeting, he expands on that a little bit and he said the type of leaders you want in your meeting are people that know how to manage their own household and that you can see that they are attempting to, to look, of course not perfectly, but trying to structure that and, and lead their household as best they can in godly ways. Timothy or Paul also recommends to Timothy that these leaders not be a recent convert. That doesn't mean that they couldn't be young because we know that Timothy was an excellent leader in the meeting, but he was young. But they had to be someone who wasn't fresh to the faith but had been established in their faith. That was important. And then Paul also says to Timothy, they need to be not only a good report in the meeting, but they need to be a good report outside the meeting, right? So others need to look at this person, even Gentile people or people who are not part of the faith, and recognise that this person is, is someone who they know what they stand for in life. So that's the first thing that was needed as a credential for this particular, uh, this particular role of leadership. The next one he says there in verse 3 is they need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, in most new translation, that word holy isn't there. It just says that they need to be full of the Spirit. Now, whilst many of these sort of first century disciples were given the the supernatural powers of the spirit. I don't think that that's what um, the apostles are talking about here. I think that they're talking about someone who has a good understanding and is led by the spirit word, the principles of God and the ways of God lead their life direction and their life decisions. And that needs to be evident in the way that they live their life. And then finally, he says, they need to be people of wisdom. Now, wisdom, I guess, is he's not talking about here that they just need to be a smart person or really good in business or, you know, someone who's, you know, done great and amazing things or is a very, very high IQ. Wisdom is, is almost the, the way that understanding is put into practice and they need to be wise, spiritually wise. Just, just come to a really good passage in James, James chapter 3, where James, I think, summarises beautifully the type of wisdom that God is looking for in leaders of the meeting. In James chapter 3, he's talking about uh, this 
spiritual wisdom. And he says, this is how it will show itself in the person's daily life and the way that they deal with things. This, this is what spiritual wisdom is. He says in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above, so that's the type of wisdom that we want. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, it's gentle, it's easy, easy to be entreated, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it doesn't show partiality and without, without hypocrisy. That's what James says is the type of wisdom which comes from above. So it's very different, isn't it, from what you would think of like a worldly wisdom or the wisdom of a great leader of the world that might be sort of ruthless and able to strike a great deal at the right time. No, this man is not like that. This man is gentle and he's persuasive and he might need to stand for certain principles, but when he does, he does it in the, the, the best way possible. He's easy, easy to be entreated. That's the type of wisdom that the apostles said is essential for this role for these leaders in the ecclesia because they're going to have to manage this tough situation. And it was a tough situation. That there were, you know, emotional feelings on both sides by these groups. And, and these leaders would need to go in the middle of that and they would need to talk to both groups and work out the best way forward so that this solution could be solved. And so the apostles said, that's what we recommend for this particular role. Now, there's one other thing at the end of that verse which I think is important as well. He then says that right at the end of verse 3, as well as those three traits, he says, whom we may appoint over this business. Okay? So they also needed to take in mind the, 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 the role and the particular skills that they might need for this particular role, right? And that role was going to be that they needed to juggle you know, the, the, uh, the Grecians, uh, the Hebrew-speaking Jews and the Jewish-speaking Jews and all of those intricacies that went with that issue. They needed to have the right skills for that particular job, right? So that's what they recommended to the ecclesia. Now, they then say that as a result of that, they recommend that to the ecclesia and they say, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministration of the word. So they, really, they reiterate, as they have earlier, that it is important for them to make sure that they stay focused on what they need to stay focused on, which is the ministry of the word and making sure they continue to explain to people the message of the gospel and continue to, to have an understanding of it. Now, in that particular verse where they say ministry of the, wor of the word, it's almost the same word used earlier when it said serve at table, okay? One is deconia and one is deconeo, right? So one we're going to be the ministers of the word and one we're going to be the ministers of the table. Now, these two types of leadership become the core leadership required in a meeting. And, Je and Paul in Timothy, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, will expand on those two roles and highlight the exact intricacies of both those roles. But both roles 
were really, really important in the meeting. They needed to be, they both needed to be filled and filled well, okay? And they make that clear. There's no point us leaving the ministry of the word and just looking after the administrative tasks in the meeting. It is very important that we stay focused on what we need to do. Now, if you look at, it's hard to, point to which direction. But if you look at these particular roles and you said which of them is the most important, well, um, I guess they're both important. But if you had to place the most importance on one, it would probably be the bishops or elders, right, or the work of what the apostles were doing because unless the work of the teaching of the word was happening, there'd be no need for the deacons anyway. So it's an essential that these two parts of the ecclesial life are focused upon, right? And they say that we need to dedicate ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I, and I sort of was thinking about that in just light of our own ecclesias today in the 20th century, 21st century, 2020. And I think that perhaps it's, it's easier to fulfil maybe the, the deacon role or the administrative tasks and sometimes maybe today the ministry of the word or the focus on that prayer and on the ministry of the word and making sure there's a clear understanding of Bible teaching, perhaps that can be something that is, um, is, is maybe not as focused upon. Maybe that's, that's just me, but... Here, the disciples, the apostles are making very, very clear, aren't they, that that is an essential part of leadership in the, in the meeting. Um, both of those particular things need to be focused on. Now, the interesting thing about, about what was happening here in, the, in this decision, this is the decision, they, they recommend that to the ecclesia. Now, where have they got that from? Well, if you just want to come quickly back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, We'll see back here in Deuteronomy that the disciples actually had not come up with this idea of how to solve this problem themselves. In fact, they had just gone back to the Bible and seen where previously there had been a similar problem in the meeting and they'd found out what the Ecclesia did in that particular time and they're basically copying it, right? If you come back here to Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is... Moses describing the exact same problem that he faced when he was in the wilderness in the ecclesia, the ecclesia in the wilderness. Look what it says in verse 10. And Yahweh your God hath multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of the heaven for multitude. That, now, the, the multitude in the wilderness was just enormous. It was like you know, approaching millions of people. And that's how much they had multiplied. And it became an enormous job for Moses to manage himself. And he says that in verse 12. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? Moses had come to realise that it was inappropriate and impossible for him alone to manage this meeting as an individual by himself. And you remember Jethro, his father-in-law, came and told him that. He said, I've been watching you, and you get up at the, the crack of dawn and you... You, you, you stay awake the entire day until, until midnight at night with people coming to you every day and you're trying to solve your problems. You, you can't possibly do that. And so they decide to do this in verse 13. Take you wise men. 
men of understanding, known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. You see the same three credentials that the apostles had said were needed for the men to be placed in these particular roles. And you notice that Moses, just like the apostles, says, you take them. You decide who's going to be the people that are going to rule over you and are going to be the ones to make these decisions. So that's what they do. They took the chiefs of the tribes in verse seven, uh, verse 15, men who were known, and they selected these men to be in charge of looking after each one of the tribe's needs. And then from there, they would be able to administer the tasks very well. And you can see there that he divides them up into fifties and hundreds and thousands to make that job easier. So the apostles no doubt had gone to this passage and they'd seen what Moses had done in the ecclesia in the wilderness and they basically mimicked that in trying to solve their own problems. And I think that's a key to biblical leadership as well. And ecclesial leadership in the first century was they found a biblical solution and they applied that. And, of course, that's what the Bible is brilliant for, isn't it? The Bible is brilliant for being able to solve every single problem if we look for it and find the principles in the scripture that can help us to lay it over any problem that we might have to move through it. So let's just go back to Acts chapter 6 and finish off the story of what happened. Well, the disciples, the, the, the congregation, it says in verse 5 at the business meeting, once the, the, the apostles have laid out this plan, they're really pleased by it. They think that that's a great idea. We can all be involved. Every, every party feels like they've been part of the solution and they all get to have a say. And it doesn't say exactly how they went and chose the men, whether they made a vote or whether they had some kind of system that you had to, you know, um, nominate someone or how that process happened. But it was left to them and they made those decisions themselves. And so they select these men. And the men in verse 5 are listed. You've got Stephen, you've got Philip, you've got Prochorus, you've got Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and the proselyte of Antioch. Seven men were chosen. Now, in case we thought that, oh, this is just, you know, men who were, you know, selected for the looking after table, so they need to be, you know, very basic men, you know, men sort of, you know, they don't need to have much um, credentials to them. Look at the, the, some of the people that were selected. You've got Stephen as a star, who we know in, in Chapter 7 gives one of the most remarkable and amazing speeches in all the Bible. So these men were not just, you know, uh, lowly men with no understanding. These were wise men who knew their Bibles, but they'd also been selected very wisely by the meeting for this particular task. You notice that... All of those names, they're all Greek names. So obviously all these men that were chosen were probably all men who were from the Greek-speaking Jew background. But the entire ecclesia had selected these men. So they must have been amazing men, mustn't they, and wise men for all of the ecclesia to have voted and selected these seven men, and are also men perfect for the role because they had an emotional connection probably with many of these widows. And so they were able to go straight in and to help solve this problem. So the Ecclesia in verse 6 brings to the meeting 
their selection. And the apostles take those men and it says they laid their hands upon them, which was sort of just of a way of appointing these men to their role. And then they take up this important role of looking after these widows in the ecclesia. Now, what happened? Well, the result of this leadership we find in verse 7. The word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. So as a result of this wise leadership, this proactive work by the leaders in the meeting at the time, the involvement of all of the ecclesia in making the decision and everyone feeling that, like they had a buy-in to the solution of that particular problem, and the wise way they went about it resulted in two things. The word is not compromised. The word can keep going out and being preached. See, that was one of the big problems with what was going on, wasn't it? As a result of this division and problems, the actual main purpose of what they were trying to achieve, which was to spread the gospel further and further, was being stagnated. But now as a result of this leadership by the meeting and by these apostles, the word goes out. And not only that, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. So there's harmony restored to the meeting too. There's unity restored to the meeting. And the ecclesia in Jerusalem again begins to grow and begins to prosper, all because of the leadership of these disciples and these apostles. I think that's beautiful and a great insight into the way that God wants all of us to lead in our meeting. Now, that leadership model, as we've got here, the, the bishops, the elders, bishops or sometimes they're called elders, and the deacons, this leadership, simple leadership model, was then rolled out to all the rest of the Gentile ecclesias. Just come over to Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and you'll see there, That, that is not the verse that I was talking about at all. But if you just turn over to Titus chapter 1, there's another verse, fortunately, that I've got that says basically the same thing. If you look at Titus chapter 1, this is Paul writing to Titus about the ecclesias. He says in Titus 1 verse 5, for this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed you. So this became the model that was rolled out to all the ecclesias. That when Paul or, the, or another set of disciples would come to a meeting and the meeting became established and it became a functioning ecclesia, they would appoint these elders. And these elders would then move to these two main roles of, one, looking after the spiritual content of the ecclesia as these elders, and then these other practical servants which are called deacons, which would look after the administrative tasks which were also extremely important in the meeting. And that's the way the ecclesia functioned. And that is passed on. You can see that in all the epistles. You pick up 
on those elders in all the different meetings. Paul often writes to the elders at the meeting. In the letters to the seven ecclesias in Revelation, he writes to the elders of those particular meetings. It was passed on and passed on to all these meetings. And that model has been passed on through the generations of the ecclesias as they've existed in all different parts and all different places in the world. And, of course, that same model has attempted to be passed to us in the way that we function. I think it's interesting to compare the way we function to the way that the first century function here, particularly in the way that we lead. Sometimes it sort of feels like we think, oh, how how have we sort of got to the way we do things? Like is it sort of just random? Some guy came up with an idea and we'll just follow that idea and, um, you know, no one sort of challenged those particular ideas? Well, it's not actually. It's, It's someone has looked at these passages and has tried to, in a very simple way, in our modern context, sort of, sort of apply those principles to the way that our ecclesias operate. We'll just finish by looking at a, a couple of quotations from um, Robert Roberts from the, Ecclesi- the book The Ecclesial Guide. Right? Sounds like the most boring book in the world, but it's actually a very short book and it's a really, really interesting book because... It's a book that Robert Roberts wrote, and I chose this sort of, um, sort of a bit more hip <laughs> version of Robert Roberts down there. That's before he had the, you know, the pioneers moved into the full sort of beard operation. This is when he was in his early sort of hipster um, pioneer sort of mode. Um, but he wrote in, 19, in 1889 the Ecclesial Guide, which is sort of a 10, 20-page booklet, which sort of attempts to sort of work out how we should function, just that the practicalities about how we should work. And I'll just read out three quotations that apply to, to some of the things which we've just spoken about about leadership. The first one is about selecting a group of arranging brothers, right? He says, there must be arrangement and it must be the work of some in particular. If those appointed to do the work are called arranging brothers, it will be a literal description and not a name of honour. Names of honour are to be avoided in the probationary stage of the body of Christ. So he selected that deliberately because he just wanted it to be a sort of a servant role and the description to be to sort of match that. He probably didn't sort of anticipate the, um, the more hip sort of AB, um, ABs as they've become sort of known in more modern times. But that's the, why, the reason he selected it. He says there, seven is a convenient and scriptural number for the purposes of management. Does it need to be seven? Of course, it doesn't have to be seven. And for some small meetings, that might not be appropriate. Or if a meeting becomes really big, you might have to divide the leadership up and have, as the apostles did, a central group of leadership and then subcommittees that are looking after different parts of that meeting. But he saw that there was a need and he obviously got it from here, Acts chapter 6 in the way that our leadership would be structured. Next quote is this one here. This is talking about the spiritual credentials of those that should lead. Their function would be to attend all business matters connected with the operations of the ecclesia. Their qualifications would principally require to be practical, of practical order. But as the business... As the business they would have to do would be business with spiritual objects, arranging brothers ought, above all things, to be men of truly brotherly spirit, possessing a business turn, but chiefly the brotherly character. It is not sufficient that they have a business turn, 
they must be brethren first and arranging brethren afterwards. So he, obviously looking at Acts chapter 6, had seen that the way that we should select leaders in our meeting is first and foremost those principles of wisdom and being led by the, the, the spirit and the direction of the spirit in our lives and, and demonstrating that in the way that we live. And there might be reason to have sort of a, a practical, like good at a particular skill set. Obviously, if someone's good at finance or they're good at organising, those things are going to be appropriate for different roles. But they almost, upper and foremost, must be spiritual brothers and sisters um, that are selected. And then finally, this one. He says, when the ecclesia needs to make big decisions. He says, while appointing special brethren to special offices, the ecclesia ought to retain a power of regulation and control. This is done by making, making the proceedings of the arranging brethren subject to the periodical approbation of the general body. Let the arranging brethren report their acts once in three months to the general body. So obviously that's talking about business meetings. And again, that seems to have come from Acts chapter 6 because that's what they did. They recognised that although they were appointed as leaders to the meeting, they were all the body of Christ. And as a result of that, it was important, particularly in key decisions of the meeting, that every member of the ecclesia had to have their say on those particular issues and so that would create harmony and unity in what people were doing. And that's why it's so important that we have business meetings. And that's so important that when we come together and we have business meetings, that everyone comes and makes particularly key decisions. And sometimes those business meetings can be people have different opinions about different things, but that's good because that brings the issue to the ecclesia so they can see all different parts of that problem. And once they see all the different parts of the problem, they are able to wisely work out the best way forward. And that's the way that we have been structured. And I think, that's, I think it's really it is brilliant, the way that we've been structured. And obviously, it's brilliant because it's God's design. And you think about the way our ecclesias, ecclesias are structured. We do not have a head system which manages us and looks after us. We rely principally upon these very basic leadership principles which bind us together. And I think that is something that we should, uh, we should hold on to because that they're very important and they, and they work to bring harmony and unity in the ecclesia. So just to finish, I, I, just one thing I, I was sort of, as I was thinking about these principles, um, if you go into what Paul says about leadership, he really recommends when he talks about leadership for people to be involved in leadership in the meeting. He urges them. He says, oh, if, if someone desires the work of, of a leader in the meeting, they should put their hand up and do it because it's a great work and it's a work that we need to be done. Peter, in First Peter, he says the same things. He says we need people to be dedicated to the, 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 the care of the meeting and see it as a, as a priority. Now, I look today um, and I think in the world at large, probably, there's, there's maybe a reluctance to be involved or put your hand up to be a leader. Um, and that's probably because there's, you know, these days leaders attract so much criticism. It seems to be a, a national pastime in our particular country um, to pull down a leader. And I'm guilty just in the last week. Like, who, who, who among us perhaps haven't um, said something? And critical 
about Daniel Andrews or someone else of, of our leaders and, and brought them down and pulled them down about their particular leadership. Well, but that's actually not what God recommends. That's not what Paul recommends. He recommends that even the leaders in our world, we should give honour and respect to. And certainly leaders in our ecclesia, we should do the same. And he urges people to be involved and put their hand up to lead in the meeting and be involved in that work. And I think that's a really important part of our ecclesia and, and the modern ecclesias as we keep going forward. The ecclesia and the growth of the ecclesia involved um, needs continually younger people coming and being involved and being part of the leadership of the meeting and creating harmony in order that the work of the ecclesia can continue. So finally, I'll just put up five, perhaps five points that we can take away from what we've looked at about leadership in the first century. Number one is, these are all about leadership. Leadership is, it's an, we've seen it's, it's in the ecclesia, an essential balance of spiritual and practical administration, right? And if we err between one and the other, there can be problems with that in the meeting as we saw how that, that came about tonight. It needs to be, good leadership needs to be shared amongst a variety of skilled ecclesial representatives. It can't just be left to the same key people the whole time because they might not represent all of the ecclesia. It's important that all of the ecclesia is represented in the leadership of the meeting. It's important also that the right skills are seen for the right jobs. We saw that the apostles were very proactive in the way that they dealt with that problem, and that's important in leadership. If there's a problem in the meeting, the leadership needs to deal with it in the best way possible. And they use biblical solutions to solve their problem, which is important. Number four was the works, um, they worked with the whole body when making key decisions. So the leadership, the apostles, made sure they involved all of the meeting in key decisions that were made. And finally, good leadership, when done correctly, worked to bring harmony, didn't it? And it worked to bring continued growth. And that's what God wants. And that's what the ecclesia was designed for, that it has harmony and unity. There's always going to be problems that challenge that. But it's during those problems and challenges where the ecclesia is tested the most, I believe, and can grow the most and move through those particular problems, as we saw in Acts chapter 6, to come out the other end stronger than before and to continue the work of the most important work of passing on the gospel to more and more people as possible. 